0: Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a US veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. On today's episode, I'm honored to welcome David Noor. David has an incredible story rooted in resilience, co-creation and lasting change. David is not only the CEO of the Noor Group, a business he built after 20 years of professional practice, but also a great citizen, father, husband, son, and storyteller. We delve into some of his story in this episode and uncover the many tales we share in common, as well as explore the new reality of the world around us both. David has written 11 books and is working on his 12th while rewriting some of his early work to reflect today's challenges in building relationships and the importance of understanding the indelible imprint moments that make us who we are. I want to extend David a big thank you or Sipas Merci, as they say in Persian, for the generosity and time in joining on the podcast.
1: Yeah, sure. So, uh, David Noor, I'm uh, CEO of a, a boutique advisory firm called the Noor Group based out of Atlanta, Georgia. and for for international audience, Southeastern US, uh, originally from Iran. Uh, parents are, uh, mom regrettably passed through COVID recently, but, uh, both retired college professors in Persian literature and Persian history. Uh, grew up in Iran, Spent a number of years in the Middle East. The old, um, regime had an exchange program. So we went to Kuwait and spent some time in Dubai and Bahrain and Qatar and Saudi and that whole region. A revolution happens. A new regime comes in, cancels that exchange program. My parents had the foresight to realize there wouldn't be a whole lot of future for me in Iran. So I've got a couple uncles in Europe that said, no, thanks, too much responsibility. uh, Three uncles here in the U.S., two of them said, no, thanks. One of them said, we'll take him for the summer. So I came May 23rd, 1981 with a suitcase, 100 bucks. I land at JFK with a badge around my neck, put this kid on an Eastern airline flight to Atlanta. And by the way, he doesn't speak a word of English. So I came as a teenager. Um, My aunt's American. She pretty much convinced my uncle, you send him back, he's going to go in a war zone because Iran, Iraq were in that 10-year war. So I grew up in Atlanta, uh, uh, finished my Eagle Scout here, uh, finished high school, uh, undergraduate university, uh, engineering, and then business. Uh, Early part of my career was technology sales. So IBM, Silicon Graphics, business objects. Then uh, consulting, so the predecessor to Price Waterhouse. Then I went to Emory University for grad school. Uh, president of a company in New York, six years in a private equity uh, field where we bought and sold 110 different companies. And 20 years ago, this year, I hung my own shingles. And what we do is drive innovative, uh, profitable growth. So we look at the entire revenue engine. We look at the customer lifecycle journey. From prospects to customers to customer success, all the way to adoption and renewal, if you think of recurring revenue models. And we help global clients elevate, amplify, operationally enhance that through processes, capabilities, and technology. I've been blessed to write 11 books. So I'm currently writing book number 12 and uh, passionate about motorcycles more recently fly fishing. I have a 20-year-old daughter, an 18-year-old son, and my wife and I have been
0: married 26 years. Congratulations. That is a lot, and I cannot wait to unpack this. I got to start off by saying, David, I find the universe sometimes brings people together in the most mysterious ways, but you and I have a lot in common, (laughs) friend. Um, I was born in Tehran in 1978, Mm. August of 1978. Um, you probably remember what was going on at that time, as you as you alluded to, um, sure. my father was uh, working for Price Waterhouse at the time. <laughs> um, he had opened the office there in Tehran um, and we lost everything we uh, we had to flee um, as Americans um, there and that those were my that was my beginning. It's really interesting you mentioned, and um I'm very sorry to hear about the passing of your mom. Um, my mom passed recently as well. Um and I know the power of a matriarch in the powerful Persian families um mm-hmm. and similar in the Irish in the Irish uh, tradition the the power of the matriarch. So um I wanted to acknowledge, you know, that loss. Um Thank you. we are Thank still you. feeling that and I imagine you and your family are as well. Um, you know, you know it's it's interesting how much of our beginnings and and they carry through our, as you say, the long tail of our journey. And so there's a lot I'd like to cover, but I, I'd, I'd love to start off with that that piece around, um, you know, a- adversity and, mm-hmm. and having to flee and leave. Um, and obviously we're talking now in a time in the where the world is 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 witnessing and watching this take place in Ukraine um, on a on a grand scale, and so I would just love to start there from the standpoint of when you think about and you've written this amazing set of books, um, and most recent one, you know, Curvebenders, and you talk about the people that are in your life that really kind of change the trajectory of your life. If you go back to that time, I think you said you were pretty young when you left who were, who were some of those curve bender people, you, you, you listed a a series of relatives that that really helped you during that time of, uh, of great change, um, resettling, um, fleeing all of this, um, at the beginning of your beginning of your journey.
1: Sure. So, uh, I I tend to think of in threes. So first and foremost, my parents, Mm -hmm. I mean, again, I, now that I have kids of my own, I cannot imagine sending a teenager. Yeah to a foreign country where he doesn't speak the language, doesn't know anybody in such an incredibly unselfish thing to do. But my parents realized that they just, and I had, I had a lot of childhood friends that went to that Iran-Iraq war and either either died or came back maimed. And so, so that the, the, the undying love of, of parents to just give you that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Number one, number two. It wouldn't have happened, and, I, and I'm forever grateful to the aunt and uncle. So now they're in their 70s, and uh, you know they took me in mm-hmm. when they didn't have a really have a reason to. Especially when other other family members said no. Th- I mean, it really is a massive responsibility to take on somebody else's kid, mm-hmm. right? And 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 really treat them as one of your own. So they're like mom and dad here, and uh, so they I'm grateful. Aunt and, and uncle, you know, uncle Ken and and Jan just gave me. The opportunity to build a life that I wouldn't have had otherwise. The third one is really a culmination of. Um, so I I went to a finished high school in the outskirts of Atlanta and and there there's a there's a joke that if you take Atlanta out of Georgia and you get you get Mississippi right and for those that may not be from the South there's just there's a lot of Southern uh, heritage and history but also regrettably still a lot of bias right. And, and imagine coming here during, by the way, uh, right after, right right around the hostage crisis. Yes. Where I would go to school and these kids in the outskirts of Georgia, some of them rednecks, right, would hear on the nightly news of how evil that regime is, and rightfully so, and right. come to school the next day and I'm the only Iranian kid within a 10 mile radius. Right. So I got into a lot of fights and skirmishes and just a lot of biases and bigotry and 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 racism in many ways. and But there were this core group of individuals, both male and female, who, Bill, were incredibly kind. Mm-hmm. And they, they in some ways, took me, uh, I think, of a, a young lady named Carrie Stroud, who lived in the same neighborhood. And we rode the bus together. And you remember the scene from uh, Forrest Gump when he's walking down the bus, seats taken, right? Yeah. And, and Carrie was that person that says, yeah, you can sit here. Sure. and I, I didn't speak the language. And, and and Hector Libs was my best friend growing up. And so a core group of people made me feel welcomed and valued and part of this incredibly foreign land and, and where you don't know the customs and you don't know the vernacular and the, the cultural norms. Mm-hmm. And they, they embrace you. Shannon Bullard. I mean, just and these are people from 30, 40 years ago, which, by the way, are attributes of curve vendors. Yeah. Because they leave an indelible imprint on you yeah. and they shape your direction and destination. And what they showed me was kindness is available in abundance.
2: Right.
1: You just have to tap into it and you have to show, you can't just talk about grace, you can't talk about uh, gratitude. You have to demonstrate it. Mm-hmm. And they they were kind to me in a time where they didn't need to be or have to be. And and just a quick story for your audience. Sure, I please. think it was my 16th birthday. My aunt, uh, you know, it's a big coming of age. And so she we we got some invites, and I handed out invites to a bunch of friends at school. And it was uh, Bill, you're gonna laugh. It was at a roller skating rink.
0: I loved those. I loved right? those.
1: <laughs> With the music and the lights, and yeah. it was just like big time and um she got a cake from a local grocery store and we went there all excited with decorations and nobody showed up. Oh man. And I went home oh. crying and we got my parents on the phone and I said I want to come home. Yeah. And they uh, I, I remember like it was yesterday and we're talking about 40 plus years ago. Yes. And and they said there's no coming back. You got to find So talk about resilience. Yeah. When there's no bridge to kind of go back to, there's no ship, <laughs> You've, and there's nothing to go back with and yeah. on. You f- you figure out a way to adapt.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And all of those formative experiences in many ways have shaped my resiliency, have shaped my sense of resolution mm-hmm. and, and, and tenacity. I asked, Ten people that know me and nine will probably tell you tenacious. I've always been, and I taught my kids: you want anything in life, you got to go after it. Nobody's gonna hand it to you. Nobody's gonna give you anything. You got to go earn it, and you got to go earn every inch of that of those opportunities. Right. So, yeah, those formative years—that's a lot of what uh, shapes, And, and and it leaves this gaping hole for. The love, the affection, the proximity of an aunt and uncle were great, yeah. but they can't be your real parents. Right. And and um, and yeah, it was it was a really tough few years. Um and and you learn you learn that I can either which which by the way just real quickly serves you well when you get fired from a job or you get laid off from a job right. or you you know whatever setbacks you have what i learned very early on is i can either put that energy feeling pitiful and and pit upon about myself and or i can put that energy in moving forward right and and the moving forward part making it not a failure but a learning moment and moving forward with that experience with that knowledge i keep telling my my kids i earned the gray hairs right right yeah, me and too the <laughs> and, and the wrinkles right and and it helps you forge ahead right not keep wondering and looking and having anchors in your life
0: you know it's really I think it's really uh, it's an important thing to remember, and I love that you get to share that with your your kids I'm, i mean i'm curious if if your thoughts on obviously as we mentioned what 's being played out in the world right now is is levels of resiliency and we 're seeing families separated we 're seeing children separated from fathers we're seeing people driven you know by strangers to borders so that they can be safe. Um, what are your like how are you feeling with all this? I imagine it's bringing up a lot for you. Um, it brings up a lot for me in in many ways, and I certainly didn't go through you know the the experience you did. Um, but I'm just curious if you could share kind of what's what's coming up for you as you, as you watch all this stuff happen in the world right now uh, first and foremost, heartbreak because
1: uh regrettably i read a I read a fascinating statistic that something like only forty seven percent of Americans have a passport, yeah. and you know certainly the pandemic hasn't helped, but even pre-pandemic, even those with passports didn't have any stamps in them. <laughs> a lot of those people did. So if you haven't traveled, if you haven't lived or worked abroad, you don't understand how incredibly blessed and privileged we are in the states or in many Western cultures we we don't in the US we don't thankfully we don't have to worry about <laughs> an invasion we don't have to worry about you know so so heartbreak is when and when you see the innocent lives you're right it brings back you know Iran was involved with you know 10 years of this bloody war with Iraq over a river
2: right
1: um the second one is is one of anger
2: mm-hmm.
1: of how our foreign Policy seems to change with the direction of the wind.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh US armed Saddam for decades. And we saw how that turned out with the body bags that came back to our country of our own soldiers that went there. So so I I struggle with some of our foreign policy decisions. Um helplessness. Yeah. I, I was I was sitting on my couch, having a glass of wine, watching the State of the Union address. And I'm thinking there are homes on fire on the other part of the you know other side of the world and 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 that sense of helplessness of could we give money could we sure but it doesn't it doesn't stop the suffering it doesn't stop the barrage of bombs that are falling so you 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 those that's those are the things that that I felt the combination of the sadness and the frustration and the Helplessness and uh, you know, trying to talk through my 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 kids are again twenty and eighteen are really curious of dad. Why is this happening and and what can we do about it? And are the sanctions? The other thing that most people understand is sanctions seldom hurt the government. Sanctions hurt the people, right? That hopefully will put pressure on the government to change their. But in when it, when it comes to brutal dictatorships, when it comes to in some ways bullies i bill i'd welcome your opinion my, my my experience is the only thing i understand is force
2: yeah
1: with equal measure and and we can put all the sanctions you want that is not going to stop the bombs that is not going to stop 150,000 troops you know invading you know an independent un, unprovoked invading defending yourself is one thing
2: right you
1: know encroaching on 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 you know, sovereign property, sovereign land, because you're bored, uh, is something entirely different. And and the, you're right. There's going to be this has generational effects.
0: Absolutely, generational trauma.
1: Those kids that are separated from and they're never going to get their dads back. And they're you know displaced. And you know, you and I fled. Mm-hmm. You, you're never going to get that livelihood back. You're never going to get the rebuilding takes years.
2: Right.
1: Um, and it just, it, it it never ends well. And appeasing dictators is how we got into world wars in the past. Right. And there's also that, that, just a quick comment of the worst thing, you know, good people can do in face of evil to do nothing. And I feel like our leadership, political leaders are, are, are not doing enough to stop this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, uh, there's so much, there's so much amalgamation of emotions right now. Um, And and as you described, you know, and you would say, like, everybody kind of looks at it from a different angle. You know, not only do we share that kind of common beginning journey, I think, interestingly enough, I actually got to spend um, two years living in Warsaw, Poland, after communism fell, where my father opened the Pricewaterhouse office after the Iron Curtain fell. Um, and then we went to Moscow and he opened the Pricewaterhouse office in Moscow for four years. Um, I've also had the opportunity to spend a lot of time in Ukraine and and know the incredible, beautiful land and people. And so the emotions are all of those things that you named, um, and the additional complexity of 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 the proximity, knowing, knowing these places, knowing these people. Um, I remember when I was in college and I read the news about Putin, quote unquote, getting elected, and I was I was devastated. And most of the people in college couldn't understand why I was a freshman in college, right? And and I'm a, I'm upset over this headline that wasn't. I mean, to be honest, I think it was on the like 17th page of the Orange County, Orange County Register or something like that. You know, paper. It wasn't on the headlines, but yeah. I knew the severity of what it what it meant. Um, and in some ways, I felt like I knew again you don't know what's to come but you have a feeling you have an intuition when you've been through what you've described you have a sense of fear for a reason and you know that sometimes the only thing that stops that power like you said is is action um and power and putting people like you said putting bullies in their place and, and stepping up um somebody said to me this morning it's almost like the cafeteria finally stood up and and confronted the bully um but the damage is already underway. Um, and, and I think it's interesting, too. You mentioned, obviously, that you're an Eagle Scout, right? We don't meet a lot of Eagle Scouts in the world anymore. My grandfather was an Eagle Scout. My husband was an Eagle Scout. Like These are people who are of, there's a, there's a, there's a core set of values there that um, I think a lot of times are, are um, unappreciated. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about like did did some of your experience when you came to the states did some of that shape your going into scouts and then achieving yeah. that that accolade which is pretty rare for sure. these days yeah so thank you for that my son's
1: also an eagle scout and you're right congratulations it, it, it's it's thank you it's it's uh, lost some of its luster in in recent years um, so I, I was involved in scouting in Iran
0: you were okay
1: uh, and so Shah Shah brought scouting to Iran yeah. and I distinctly remember. Uh, parents working a couple of different jobs, and it was just a early on a very uh, effective after school program. And then I got I got hooked into it and went camping and and hiking. And so we I did this at a very young age. So when I came here uh, at a bus stop, uh, Hector Libs, My best friend hands me a flyer of a local. Uh, there, as you know, scout troops are typically backed by churches or okay. some sort of a. Uh, uh, you know, typically church, you know, some sort of uh, a sponsoring organization. He handed me a flyer of Troop 403 that was recruiting.
2: Yeah,
1: And I took it back and showed my aunt and uncle. And I said, I didn't know what scouting was. I, I didn't understand the term. Sure. So I went to my aunt and he said, oh, yes, its we call it Pishahangi in, in Farsi. And he said, that's what it is. I'm like, oh, I used to do that and mm-hmm. I'd like to go. And my aunt took me to the first meeting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I saw a group of boys and and I heard about their programs and saw the patrol structure and uh earn what you learn, the skill yeah. awards, and merit badges, badges, and on and on yeah. and on. And and it was, it was um, it was truly a saving grace for me. Mm-hmm. Because while a lot of my friends were getting into drugs and drinking and getting into neighborhood trouble and mischief, as teenagers do, I was on backpacking trips right. and and hiking and I I earned my way into something called the Oar of the Arrow, which is the Scouting National Honor Society, Mm -hmm. and um, got got you know my Eagle Scout project done. And by the skin of my teeth, by my 18th birthday, I got my I got my uh, and and it helped, and it has helped tremendously since because you you meet other Eagle Scouts or those that certainly understand what it takes. And for the audience, something like less than three percent of all the boys traditionally boys, more recently they've also opened up to girls, but Less than three percent of kids who get into scouting actually make Eagle, so yeah. it is rarefied air. And I pushed my son; I, I pushed them, also encouraged them. You know, every Sunday we take out the scout book and work on something. Right. And we have, uh, and and you create unbelievable memories because if you think about the time you have to influence, particularly sons. Mm-hmm. You know, their formative years—they don't—they don't don't understand. They don't know enough. And by 18, they go off to school, and it's now influenced more by their peers. So it's really that—that 11, 12 to 18 is where you have the best chance to influence them. And you know, we've had talks about girls and and work and work ethic. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I don't want to ask you more than once, and do it right the first time. And there's a direct correlation between success and preparation. And very early on, he learned to pack himself right. and he learned how to I distinctly remember him and a friend of his, uh, Brandon, who both got eagles at the same time, were are on this backpacking trip, Blood Mountain in the North Georgia mountains. It has rained all day. So everything's wet. We're on top of this mountain hill. So the wind is just gushing. They cannot, the eight, 10 of them cannot get a fire going. Mm-hmm. So uh Justice and my son and and Brandon got got a uh, Braden got uh you know boys to open up their jackets around yeah. the fire pit to block the wind and they found some dry timber and and they they got a fire going and that's how they were able to eat and, and get a meal going. And and so, you know, we've 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 learned and same thing. It's taught him not only what I genuinely believe is lifelong skills mm-hmm. but also hopefully have shaped his character. Yeah uh, in how he shows up, how he treats his dating a young lady, uh, how he manages his own finances, how he, regrettably, a lot of what's not taught in our schools. So it was a great accomplishment for me. It was a great accomplishment for him. And it's one of those things that that you regret isn't more prevalent in our society because they do build... uh, 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 lifelong, lifelong skills, lifelong capabilities.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting, even as you, as you describe and recount, like I remember my troop 1276 in Texas, in Houston, Texas. And I remember wilderness survival. And I remember, you know, the, the overnight march that we had to do and, uh, you know, where you have the passwords along the way and you have to remember those passwords and you're, you're enduring the elements. And there's a lot of, you know, I, I mean, granted scouting in the eighties, early eighties was probably a little different than it is now there. I could probably tell some stories that some people might consider today psychological duress, right? Okay. There was some of that, right? I get it. Um, I didn't necessarily have the best time at times, but it shapes, it shapes you. Um, and I remember those moments of camaraderie. I remember those moments of, you know, when the scout falls behind you, you go back and you pick him up, you keep going, you know, you get everybody across the the line you make sure everybody's warm and fed and eaten. And I think in some ways there was this piece that always resonated with me was this sort of wisdom of the elders, which I feel like it's a lot is lost. Now. Um, we don't have these bridges, as you described to, to, to tell those stories, to talk about life skills, whether it's financial, whether it's personal, whether it's psychological, um, and I think there's there's such a need for that, frankly, and I think there's going to be more need for that as people try and understand what's happening in the world today. Um, you know, there was somebody I talk, chatted with yesterday and they said, how do I explain to a kid who's never had the term nuclear war as part of their daily lexicon? Because they've grown up in a world that didn't have to have that on the headlines like like some of us did in the 70s and 80s and, and even earlier than that. How do you explain that concept to a child? Um when it's not only foreign to them, but it's just the last thing that their their mind can wrap its head around, um, and so I, I I'm glad to hear that that tradition is is continued in your family. Um, and did I catch you? Did I catch you correctly? Did you say your son's name was Justice? J U S T U S Justice. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It means
1: uh, so as you know, the the Persian culture likes names that have meanings. Mm-hmm. And when my wife and I met, I said, listen, I, I like unique names. I like names that have some some uh, reference. Some. So Grayson, G-R-A-Y-S-O-N, is our daughter.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that means kind of pure white. Um, justice means uh, solidified, kind of rock of Gibraltar, dependable. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly how this kid is. Yeah. You just put him, put him in with a group of... And, and by the way, when teenagers gather... The collective IQ drops by like two hundred percent.
0: Right. So <laughs> wisdom put, of the elders him, is important. Right. So put them put them together with a bunch of
1: other knucklehead teenagers, and 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 suddenly he he seems to be the voice of reason of Maybe we shouldn't jump off that roof. Right. You know, or maybe we shouldn't right, do some of these things. But you know, and, and scouting, like I said, just a quick comment on scouting. Sure. It, it was the it was the it was the quintessential servant leadership. Yes. Kind of nucleus. Mm-hmm. So the patrol method and the leadership. Patrol leaders were always first to get up and last yeah. to go to bed. Patrol yeah. leaders always carried the extra backpack that the younger scouts couldn't. There's a reason you come in at eleven and you you eagle out at you know before eighteen. And you're right. They, he he he. I I, I slept on the ground cloth on my first camping trip. Yeah. And three in the morning, I'm soaking wet for your audience. The condensation from the ground comes up through the tent. Yeah and everything is wet so i am i'm i'm shivering it's cold north georgia mountains everything i own is wet i go to the leader and it's like go, go to your patrol leader right so they they teach you command and they teach you chain of command and so patrol leader takes me by the fire we put up a, a flat rock it gets the fire going back up flat rock that wrapped that in a towel that acts as a heat condenser and that's how i got dry and i was able to sleep and I never ever forgot a ground cloth again, yeah first time justice you know wor- is working on cooking, burns his hand because he grabs a a a dish without you know a pod without without utensils, and so you learn, and that's how you learn and grow and, and again i i the my biggest regret is all that we learned through scouting, all that the positive, all the we went to the national jamboree, mm-hmm. uh, you are talking about forty thousand kids in Bechtel, West Virginia. Um, you know, the two of us now ride motorcycles and we've ridden our motorcycles across the entire continental divide from wow. New Mexico to uh to Montana. Mm-hmm. It's two thousand miles, all back road, eighty percent of it you can't get to with cars.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we rode through torrential hail and we rode through massive rains, and you know, a lot of those experiences and, and expertise we've gone through. First aid, and we've gone through wilderness survival and wilderness first aid and mm-hmm. first responder training. So, all of that kicks in. We got, you got to chuckle at this. We have our emergency preparedness crates back of the, you know, SUVs. Oh, yeah. And My dad had the same thing. <laughs> non perishable food in the basement. Yeah. And, you know, so all of those things truly become lifelong skills. By the way, it also helps you and i wrote about this in curve benders this idea of your personal growth in an s curve yeah it allows you to take learnings from one part of your life mm-hmm. and apply it in others yeah. it allows you to take your you know packing list from one part of your life and create project plans mm-hmm. it allows you to take uh you know bad experiences and don't think of them as failures but as learning moments in other parts of your life and 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 I regret, and my kids went to a decent high school, and I had this argument with the headmaster of how much we're not teaching these kids how ill-prepared they are when they actually go to college and certainly when they come out of college around finance, around, mm-hmm. you know, we used to take home economics class. You remember right. those things? We had to learn yep. how to sew and cook and, life skills. you know, life skills. And you come out, and, you know, with several hundred thousand dollars in debt, and you're inept at adulting. Right. And, and you're wondering, where are we failing these kids? We're handicapping these kids by not giving them those life skills to become self-sufficient, to mm-hmm. become contributing members of the society. And that you're not going to get far by sleeping in until, yeah, I know you want to go be a YouTuber influencer, but, you know, rest of us actually get up and we shower and we shave and we clean up and we go to work and we add value to those that were privileged to kind of work with and work for. And, you know, we're losing touch with reality on some of these things. A lot of data contributed back to, A, first-generation immigrant, to scouting where absolutely shaped a lot of those formative years.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking with a, a former principal yesterday. One of the things that this principal said was back when she was, you know, principal and teacher, we used to take time to actually explain to people and to young kids why we were disciplining them, right? So you, you say you can't do this, but then you explain why. So you you do that that neural fusion, right? This happens, right? If I grab the pot and I get burned, like this is what happens. So you gotta make that neural fusion. And I think in some ways, that's a little bit gone by the wayside. We, we discipline, but we don't explain. We don't allow the neural fusion to happen to to, to improve. Um and I think that is a challenge. It is a challenge for for young you know for young people today. And at the same time, there are these wonderful stories of resilience and demonstrating uh, servant leadership at a young age. You know it's interesting you describe that the name you give a child sort of determines their their the way they show up in the world, you know, with justice. Um, it's interesting when I was born, the doctor that delivered me in Tehran in Par's hospital in uh, in Tehran, um uh, looked at me and said that i had the face of an of an old man like even though i was a child i had the face of an old man so so as a result my nickname became and i'm probably going to butcher it in persian but it's is it is it Agha? is it Agha. Agha, yeah. Agha, uh, older gentleman older kind of a yeah esteemed older you know, sort of gentleman and so my yeah. my, my nickname growing up was Aghabir. like that's just that's what i was called my entire life and it's because this doctor looked at me and said this child, this newborn has the face of of sort of a, a soul that's walked before. Um, the, the Benjamin, Benjamin Button yeah. thing going on. <laughs> so it was, but that stuck with me, right? Like that sure. stuck with me in, in an interesting way about the way I was raised by a father and by grandfathers and uncles is that imprint was there. Was, oh, sure. you know, you are the oldest son, which I was the oldest son and one of six children and I'm the oldest boy it was always there the expectation was always there it was challenging yes but it's also why i was in the scouts it's also why i was in the military for 12 years it's also i mean all of these things play into our leadership and as you talk about you know curve benders and change makers and co-creating this is what you're talking about you're you're exactly right and by the way uh, justice had a
1: fleeing interest in the 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 military academies so we went to Annapolis, we okay. went to yeah Went to Air Force Academy and and he decided to go pursue a different direction. But um, you're exactly right. I I believe, and Bill, bringing this uh, full circle, Mm -hmm. as a student of business relationships, I've always believed relationships go bad with misaligned expectations. So if you set the expectations early and often, Mm -hmm. it's amazing the results you'll get. So their mom, A, a, the kids have an amazing mom. But Wendy and I talked all along, we weren't trying to teach him something when they were seven. We're trying to teach him something that hopefully would resonate at 17, yeah. and 27, and 37. So personal accountability, commitment to others in a team environment. You know, we made sure both kids played sports. We made sure that both were involved in extracurricular activities. I never wanted them to be afraid of anything. Yeah. So, you know, we've been to a, you know, we belong to a gun range and they've taken, fen- they've been to fencing camps and they went to Lego camps mm-hmm. and they they did things, obviously the hiking, a lot of the outdoors and those kind of adventures. And just to create experiences that would reinforce the expectations yeah. of not gonna, I, I, I distinctly remember, and it's amazing how, it really is true. We all become our parents when we <laughs> ate, we right? So. I remember, I think I was like Bill, I think I was like seven or eight. And may she rest in peace. My my mother uh, threw pretty much most of my room down a set of stairs, if not out the front door of our house, because my room was messy and she had asked me several times to clean it up. I mean, my mattress, my clothes. my I mean, I kid you not. It was like mom went off the deep end. So I think Justice was was five, six years old. And I'd asked them to clean his room. And I asked them to put his clothes and towels and stuff around the house. Like, you need to, son, you need to pick up. And I taught him very early on. I, I don't want to ask anything more than once. And they kind of understood that. Mm-hmm. When he gets ignored, I start throwing his shoes, his clothes, <laughs> his stuff out the front, I mean, front <laughs> door of our house. And Bill, I, I, we live in a, we're blessed. We live in a nice area. My wife is like, the neighbors are going to call. Like, what are back. you doing? Dave? They're going to think you've gone off the deep. I'm like, he's going to learn yeah. that I'm going to ask once. Yeah. And we haven't had to have that conversation again since I think he was six years old and he's 18 now. Yeah. So setting the expectations early and often. My kids never got allowances. They got commission yeah. because I wanted to demonstrate direct correlation between your effort and the results and compensation, right? Um, you know, uh, so daughter uh, is is on the she's a chemistry major, second year at Tech, uh, on the pre med track, mm-hmm. and and last year she shadowed the head of uh, robotic surgery in one of the biggest health systems in Georgia. And Bill at 18, 19 comes home and says, "Dad, today I held a lung." Wow. I don't know what you were doing at 18, but I wasn't holding long. Let's alone. just be honest. I, I was just—I still think I would turn like six shades of green if right. I was holding a lung. But right. that's that's the result yeah. of the early expectations. And and by—I don't want to paint the picture of we're perfect parents. We none of us know what we're doing. We all screw it up. We all learn as we go. But from their name to the expectations. Yeah to their behaviors, to how to live in an environment where you got affluent friends. Just because she got a brand new Mercedes doesn't mean... My son drives the SUV that we brought him home in the hospital. Mm -hmm. This Toyota's got 225,000 miles on it because value of money. And if you take care of it, it'll take care of you. And they all know how to change the tires. Mm -hmm. They all know how to... I mean, so... that carries over to also our business relationships and our professional relationships. It goes back to aligning expectations early and often, holding people accountable, making sure you show up and you show up, uh, you know, and continuously work on the best version of you. I think those things matter. and, And they set the stage of how we create success, how we create value and impact later in life.
0: Totally agree. I know we're, we're getting down to time here. So I want to be conscious of your of your time. I feel like we just started cracking open the meal. And it's like this amazing, amazing meal. But uh, I want to give you an opportunity to tell people you, you've written 11 books, you're working on a twelfth, Is that right? Can you tell people That's, where to find more information? Sure. Read your books, because I think sure. people listening are going to be like fascinated and want to learn more about
1: the work the, the, you put very- out in the world. Very kind. So yes, uh, probably the best place to find out more about me and our work is our website, Nour Group, N-O-U-R, group.com is our website. Uh, I have uh, written 11 books. So uh, I describe relationship economics, co-create, and curve benders. As my Star Wars
0: trilogy, I love, so I love that analogy. You'll
1: you'll, you'll you'll get to know Luke Skywalker if you watch any of them. You'll just get to know him a lot better if you watch all three right. episodes. You know of, of of the nine or whatever. But so so I am I am completely rewriting relationship economics. It's my seminal work. The first edition came out in two thousand eight. A second edition came out in twelve. I was user number three thousand on LinkedIn. Now there's several hundred million. I'm writing about hybrid relationships. I'm writing about uh, the moment we're creating the strategic relationship plan blueprint. Mm-hmm. I'm capturing an entire section on uh, world class relationship centric teams. And as an individual, as a team, as an organization, what that looks like. So if you can also just Google my name, David Noor, N O U R, and you'll find all kinds of videos and blog posts and articles. I've got a Forbes column, I've got an Inc. column. Uh, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. And I would encourage both you and your audience, uh, this is just a quick comment on on a trend that we've observed. In the last several years, I've seen that traditional social networks become highly promotional, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: highly politicized, and as such, highly polarizing. So I actually belong to four or five of these micro communities. Think of them, Bill, as your favorite butcher or mm-hmm. baker. Or, you know, you go there for a very specific reason. And we've created one. It's called the Nor Forum. And if you're your audience, go to Norgroup.com slash forum. Mm-hmm. Uh there's no cost. You have to answer a couple of questions. It's a private community. Come join us. There's about 2,500 folks there. I'm there every day. We add comments, we add interactions. It's like-minded professionals. And uh that's another good place to have a lot of these conversations and and learn a lot more about, not just me, but others who think a lot about relationships, a lot about the investments they make in those relationships.
0: Thank you, David. I really appreciate you mentioning that my, the power of micro-communities because I think it's, we're seeing micro-communities that are literally cha- changing and saving the world, right? Micro-communities were the ones that helped you start when you when you started. We're seeing micro-communities help mothers and children that are fleeing their homeland. I mean, these are this is where the real change happens. So I appreciate you joining to share your story. Uh, I look forward to to staying in touch with you. Um, You're doing great work. And uh, thanks again for your time.
1: My my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I I love the similarities with our backgrounds and I I appreciate you having me. Thanks. Take it easy. You too.
0: you enjoyed that discussion with David Noor as much as I did. If you would like to learn more about David and the work he does, point your browser to norgroup.com N-O-U-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. There you will find resources on his speaking engagements, as well as his blog, podcast, media, books, and more. Thanks again for listening. And of course, if you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can reach me at coffeeandchange.co. I'm also on Instagram and LinkedIn. Have a good one.